So, happy Father's Day, all right? For the past, like, six years, I've given the exact same Father's Day sermon. It takes about 30 seconds, all right? I skipped last year because, oh, I don't think we met last year, whatever that was, whatever we were doing. Well, it may have been in the park. I can't remember. But I'm going to give it to you again, dads, and I'm going to give it to you in 30 seconds, then we're going to move into Hebrews. And I'm telling you, these things that I'm getting ready to share with you will revolutionize your life. They will change you. If you will do them every single day, you will never be the same. You will not only never be the same, it will change your marriage, it will change your family, it will change your work environment, it will change your financial world, it will change everything. And it's simple. But it's, a, it's hard to do, but it's simple. But here's your Father's Day sermon, right? Not a, hey, you're a great dad, you know, have a good life, number one dad, get a shirt, get a mug, have breakfast in bed. Those things, first of all, does anybody want breakfast in bed? Is that something that anybody, anyway, aside for another time. We, talk, we had a big debate about this this morning. Um, here's the deal, right? Four things, four things in your Father's Day for, sermon that are going to change your life. First is this, fall in love with Jesus. At every point and every time in your life, whatever you can do, push yourself to be in love, literally in love with Christ, in his word and in prayer in time. Find your heart and find solace in the idea that your pursuit of your very first love is Jesus and not anything else. Not work, not your family, not money, not cars, not the dream scenario, nothing else. The first and foremost scenario in love of your life is Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus. Second, kiss your wife. Like literally never stop kissing her unless she tells you to. Then you stop, all right? But if she'll allow you to kiss her, Right on the mouth. I mean, just right on the lips. And continue to do that until the day that you die. All right? Kiss your wife. Pursue her. Love her well. Hug your kids. And when they're too old to be hugged, hug them longer. Hug them harder and never let them go. Squeeze them. Even when they're like, Dad, stop, quit. No, you just squeeze them. Never stop hugging and squeezing your kids. Never stop telling them you love them. And never let them not feel that affection from you. Right? So, Fall in love with Jesus, kiss your wife, hug your kids. And number four, don't be that guy. You know what guy that is? That guy that's too cool, too stoic, too liberal, too conservative, too political. The guy that's too busy, too anxious, too nervous, too worried. The guy that's got too much going on. The guy that's got too many opinions. The guy that's too right or too wrong. Just be humble. You don't deserve any of what you have. No matter how much you think you deserve it, how hard you work, you just don't. You don't deserve any of it, so don't be that guy. Don't be the guy that has to win an argument. Don't be the guy that has to be right. Don't be the guy that's too busy to show up at your kid's stuff. Don't be the guy that's too proud. Don't be the guy that's too political. Don't be the guy that always has to be. Just don't be a jerk, right? Just be humble. Now, if you do these things every single day, every day, push myself to fall in love with Jesus. I'm going to kiss my wife on her lips. I'm going to hug my kids. I'm never going to let them go. I'm going to tell you how much I love them. And I'm going to work everything I have today to not be that jerk, to not be that guy, to just be humble and realize that everything that I've got, every single thing I don't deserve anyway. And so today's the day I'm going to breathe, right? That will revolutionize your life. So Go home. All right. So that being said, that's your Father's Day sermon wrapped up in a nutshell, not really supported by Scripture, in, indirectly supported by the entire Word of God. But that being said, we are in week 13. I'm going to do this kind of quick because I know we spent some time in prayer. We're in week 13 of our study of the book of Hebrews. Now, <clears throat> Incredible book. I'm not going to do the whole recap. We've done a bunch of it. If you want to go back and listen to any of those, they're all available online. Greg and Angie and our great team back there is recording these things. They're posting them. They're there for you to see. All you got to do is take advantage of it. You can podcast it or you can watch it online. You can do any of those kind of things. Our technology is, well, it's second to a lot. It's, I was going to say second to none, but it is second to a whole bunch of other 
technology. But we're down there on the list somewhere, and you can find it, and it's out there. So go listen to it. But this book has been incredible. It's been a great challenge. It's deeply theological, and it's a challenge to get through. But it's a beautiful challenge because it calls into question a lot of the things that we really wrestle with as followers of Christ, which is our desire to return to the things that we know, our desire to return to the things that are safe, our desire to exchange religious experiences and habits for truth about who God is, our desire to stay in a place of complacency, our desire to stay in a place of empathy, not push ourselves to grow, not push ourselves to maturity, not to pursue true and real relationship with Christ, but instead be moved by culture, moved by circumstances. That's what's facing these Hebrew Christians, and that's what our author or our preacher is saying, don't do. And he gives a whole bunch of great reasons why, and they're deep, and they're theological, and they're important, and so we need to pay attention to them. And for the first part of this book, he has basically laid out the case that Jesus is the greatest. He's great. He's better than all things. He's better than the law, better than Moses, better than the angels, better than everything. And a couple of weeks ago, we learned that he's even better than the high priest, which would be the most holy of all holy people that was allowed to go into the presence of God before the people of Israel. Jesus is better than that. Not only is better than that, he is the only one of those we will ever Need. And he's on this just this movement to talk to us about the high priest. And then he just stops and he goes, Okay, can't do it anymore. I cannot teach you anymore until I tell you a few things that are on my heart. And I've been calling that for the past two weeks this kind of thought pause, this, this thing that's like, Okay, I was on this incredible roll, but I, I cannot continue until you hear what I've got to say because you need to hear these things so that you'll understand all that I'm talking about. And this thought pause has lasted the last two weeks and it's going to wrap up today and then he's going to transition us back into the idea of the high priest and the order of Mechizeldek, which we're going to learn about next week. But he stops this thing today. But he had two weeks of it. In two weeks we've learned that we've been called to pursue growth. We've been called to push back from infancy. We've been called to become more than we are, right? To not become complacent with the idea of I'm going to show up for church or I'm going to pray once a month, or I'm just going to have this sort of infant elementary relationship with Christ. But he's saying, look, there's a warning there. And that warning is that if we're just pursuing those things, we may be exchanging the truth of a relationship with God for religious experiences. And religious experiences will never save you. No amount of going to church, no amount of showing up at the right camp or wearing the right shirt or doing any of those things or owning a Bible or just being a good moral dude or lady, none of those things will ever save you. And we can easily exchange those moral things, those moral habitual Christian principles for a relationship with Christ. And sometimes they even look the same. And that's what we learned last week, that a lot of times those things that we think are examples of a life that's been well lived for Christ are often just things that we've done because they're not tied to the person of Christ. And so he gives us these great examples about a life that's full of growing trees and fruit and all this kind of stuff and a, and a heart that is having experiences but is barren, thistles and thorns. And he does it as a warning. He's saying, listen, don't be lulled to sleep in your Christian life. Don't think that showing up for the right things in the right places can be mistaken for trusting and walking with Christ. That's why I said in our Father's Day sermon, like fall in love with Jesus, like push yourself to become head over heels in love with Jesus. Because then those are the places that we begin to realize these are true markers of a faith in Christ. So he gives us this crazy warning that we explored last week. Very difficult questions we wrestled with. But this week... He's going to wrap it all up by helping us make sure that we can find assurance. He doesn't want us wandering around in fear and wonder and going, I don't know if I'm saved, I don't know if I'm this. He wants the church, you and I included, he wants us to know and be assured in our faith 
that God is who he says he is, that he keeps his promises, and no matter what the circumstances are around us, we can find anchor, we can find our anchor of hope in Christ. And we can be assured that we can walk out of here today feeling confident, not only in my salvation, but in the fact in this wavy, crazy, topsy-turvy culture, God is my rock, he is my anchor, he is steady, and I can always trust him. And that's where he's going to end this maturity talk, and he's going to tie us back into the, uh, the idea of the high priest. And if there's anything I need to hear this morning, it's the idea that Jesus wants me to be assured. He wants my heart to rest in him. He does not want us pushed and rolled and moved. He wants us to find our assurance in him. So we're going to pick up in chapter 6, verse 13 through 20. If you got your Bible, Hebrews. And then we're going to start chapter 7 next week. So we're going to wrap all that up today. Before we do that, let's, let's pray. We'll pray quickly. We've done a little bit of that already. But we'll, we'll pray and ask God to open up our eyes and our hearts. And, and then we'll dive into the text and see what it says this morning. Lord, you are so, so good because you give us what we need. Um, and what our hearts need is assurance. They're restless by nature, by temperament they wander. And yet you give us assurance. And as we're going to see this morning, not only do you give us assurance today, but from the beginning of redemptive history, Lord, you have marked your assurances that point us to Christ. And that Christ is the anchor for our soul. And that everything I have is wrapped up in the reality that Jesus never moves. That he is the embodiment of what it means to be grounded and held tight to something that is firm when my heart wants to wash and run and And so, Lord, we ask this morning that you would teach us that simple truth that we can find assurance in you, in your promises, and what you tell us. Take a moment in your own heart this morning, and as we prepare to open God's word, just ask the Lord to help you find assurance in a crazy world of movement, to rest assured that God is who he says he is, and that your heart is secure in his hand, and that you can trust him. Just pray that God will give you assurance this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone around you or behind you. We, uh, we love this. We do it each week. Well, I say we love it. I love it. I don't know if you like it, but we love it collectively. And uh, we want you to be in the habit of praying for other people. So just take a moment. Pray for that person. Maybe it's your husband or a friend or a child or just somebody you've never even seen before. Just pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask you to teach us through your word. There is nothing that we can learn about you that you do not reveal to us. Our human minds will never get us there. You are the revealer of all truth. And so, Lord, we ask you to teach our hearts this morning. Um, Lord, we ask you to help us be grounded in your promises and to find an anchor that is you for our soul. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So at the end of our text last week, at the end of these very difficult questions and complicated places that we've been, he, he assures or begins this assurance to this group of people. Now remember, Hebrews most likely is in a book. <clears throat> it's most likely a sermon. It was most likely preached to a group or a gathering of Hebrew Christians, which are, 
a difficult place to be. I mean, of all the Christians that were wrestling in the early first church in the first century, it had to be those Hebrews, man, because they were facing pressure that other groups weren't pressure, facing, right? The first century Greek or Roman Christians, they were facing pressure from the outside because they believed in one God and not all the gods. But really, the Hebrews were facing immense pressure from family and from culture. Their very identity was wrapped up in their religious life. And by claiming that Jesus was the Son of God, they are basically rejecting all that their family is now standing on and saying because they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed he was an imposter, a blasphemer. And therefore, if you believe in Jesus, you are put out of the community. And so they were calling them back and trying to get them to, to recant on their belief. It's just a ter- terrible place to be. And so our author's reminding these Hebrew Christians, like, listen, in a world that's going to try and tell you the opposite, I want you to find your hope and your assurance in Christ and Christ alone. And so he begins to reassure them in 9 through 12 at the end of our text last week. He begins to say, listen, I don't see these things in you. And he's talking about the difficulty of exchanging religious experience for true faith. He's like, I don't see those in you. In fact, we see something better in you. And what we see in you is evidence in your love for one another and how you care for each other as a community. So, so I want you to have assurance. I don't want your heart to wander. I want you to be assured. And here is this morning how he's going to tell them they can have assurance and tell us how we can have assurance and kind of trust in the great and true promises of God. And this is what 13 through 20 says. When God made his promise to Abraham... Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and an oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what God had promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled take hold of the hope offered so that we may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. And he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, which we're going to get to next week. So he's wrapping up this thought pause, this conclusion, with this assurance. He doesn't want them to hear what he's saying and the challenges there within, all things we've talked about for two weeks. He doesn't want them to hear that and be afraid. He doesn't want them to hear that and wander. He wants them to hear it and be warned. But as we talked about last week, he also wants them to hear that, be driven towards growth, and find assurance in the promises of God. He says, listen, let me tell you how you can rest assured. And he's going to give them two giant reasons. It's really a twofold reason, twofold singular reason, if you will. But it's got two parts. And the truth is we all need assurance. We just do. Our hearts are, are driven by its temperament to have a weak faith, and they're driven by its temperament to be moved by culture and moved by circumstances in life. It's where our hearts are naturally inclined because we are at our very root sinful. And so our hearts are moved and they are swayed. A lot of times by things that are going on in our lives. We look at our lives and we weren't ready for what's coming. We didn't know that we were going to have to deal with the things that we're dealing with. We didn't know we'd have to deal with a child that that has done this or that has moved on or that hates us. We didn't know we're going to have to deal with death in the family that is almost unexplainable. We didn't know we'd deal with great financial loss or with the difficulty of trying to navigate a marriage that's been broken or infidelity. We didn't know we'd have to deal with losing a child or burying a parent or taking care of our parents in their old age or whatever it may be. We didn't know life circumstances were going to be with they were. 
And oftentimes when those circumstances come, it moves us off center. And we begin to wonder and begin to even ask questions. God, why is this happening? Why am I going through these things? What, are, what is here and why is it unfolding? And those circumstances, coupled with our weak, weak, weak faith, move our anchor point. And we begin to, re- we begin to wrestle with assurance. We begin to wonder, God, are you real? God, where are you? God, why am I the only one dealing with this? Why is my heart afraid? We begin, when we get afraid and anxious and worried, we begin to cling tightly to the wrong things. We begin to, we begin to grab onto all of our financial resources. We begin to gravitate towards things that we know, even when we know they're unhealthy. It's why oftentimes we can't break cycles of sin because we'd rather hold on to the unhealthy than stand in the unknown. The reality is, is that we need assurance. And the great thing is God knows it. God knows the inclinations of our heart. He knows that we need that. And so our author here in Hebrews is going to give us some incredible reasons why we can rest assured and not wonder about our salvation, about the promises of God, or if God even hears us. He's going to look at this group of Christians and he's going to look to you and to me as heirs to these promises. He's going to say, here are two reasons, and they're twofold, of why God is a God who keeps his promises. And the first that we see in those first verses is this. God swears an oath, which may sound really odd to us, but is really important in that culture and actually is really important to you and I today. God takes an oath. He swears an oath. Verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will bless you and I will give you many descendants. And after waiting patiently, Abraham received what is promised. Now, in order to really understand what our author is doing here, you've got to have an intimate knowledge of what unfolds in the book of Genesis. And our, our group of, of Hebrew Christians would have been very familiar with Genesis, right? This is the origin of life story. This is the origin of them as a people group story. This is the origin of redemptive history. And you and I actually should be very familiar with this as well because it's our beginning. And we are grafted into these promises that are in these verses as a recipient of what was given to Abraham. But here's basically what God, uh, what our author is saying about who God is. He's saying you've got to remember back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of the land of Ur, the Chaledons, and he leads him into a place. He says, I'm going to give you a land of your own, a place. And in chapter 15, he begins to make a covenant with Abraham, saying, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Chapter 17, he gives him circumcision as a symbol of that covenant, saying, this is how I'm going to mark you and separate you as a people. And in chapter 22, which is where we're getting our verses from today of Genesis, he makes this great promise, this oath, by asking Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. You may remember that story. Right? God has made this incredible promise to Abraham that he is going to give him a son and that this promise, this covenant was going to come in the lineage of Abraham and Abraham's son and it was going to come through the womb of Sarah. And Abraham has waited a whole lot of years for this to happen. And he has a son, Ishmael, which not, was not with Sarah. And he's waiting for God to fulfill that promise. And Sarah's like 90-something years old when she finally becomes pregnant. And God is finally giving Abraham the promise that he said he would, the covenant of this heir. And Isaac is 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 13. We don't know, but he's in that window of a young boy. And God comes to Abraham in chapter 22 and he says, I want you to take your son and I want you to go up to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him for me. This is the promise that God had given Abraham, the promise that he said would be the mark of the covenant that he made with him. 
And so what does Abraham do? He doesn't argue with God. He grabs two servants and they leave early in the morning and he takes his son Isaac and they go up to the mount. Asks his servants to wait, takes his son, builds an altar, straps his son to it. and He's going to do the unthinkable, but what God has apparently asked him to do. And he grabs that knife and he raises it to plunge it into Isaac. And an angel of the Lord appears and says, stop, don't you harm that boy. I see that you would not withhold anything from me. And there's a ram over there caught in the thicket. It says, God has provided this. And today, using God's word, God has taken an oath. I swear to you to promise that I will do what I said I would do. And he makes an oath by himself, which is actually quoted right here in Hebrews chapter 6, right? Saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. And he said, don't. He exchanges this ram for Isaac. They sacrifice the ram, and the rest is the movement of redemptive history. Now, why is that important for you and for me? And why would we need to hear it, and why would it be so powerful for them? Because God doesn't need to swear oaths. Humans swear oaths. Humans swear oaths because they're untrustworthy and they lie. God does not. But God takes an oath because he knows that our faith is weak. He knows that we're going to be moved by culture. He knows that when coupled with circumstances, all of a sudden we start asking questions like, God, where are you? And he says, listen, to this gathered group of Hebrews, I know that your hearts are being swayed by culture. I know that you're having a hard time believing me when I tell you you can be assured in me. And so just like I did to Abraham when I delivered him and gave him the oath and that promise, that promise is for you. That promise, that oath that I swore, which I cannot lie, which is unchangeable in me, I assure you that my word is true as it was for Abraham because I swore an oath on it. This is the God of the universe who steps, literally stoops out of heaven and swears an oath to humanity to reassure our faith as if his word was not good enough for us. He actually says, no, I, I swear And this is what I even showed Abraham. As I showed Abraham that my promise is so secure that not only will I keep it, but I will provide everything I need and everything he will ever need to be assured in it. And God provides that ram and Abraham doesn't have to sacrifice his son. And the rest is the movement that you and I are a part of. We are the blessing. We are the covenant people. As followers of Christ, we've been grafted into God's covenant family. We are part of the great promise of God. And the Hebrew Christians that were hearing these words were as well. And God was telling them, like, listen, I want you to be reassured. You don't have to worry and wander as if you're not saved or wonder about your salvation. Because I made a promise that was fulfilled, and I swore by it, and is now fulfilled in Christ. And that same great exchange that I made with the ram for Isaac, right, that my promise and my oath is secure in Christ and sacrifice and made for you, and I want you to know that I swore an oath by it. Which, so for our standards, it's kind of like, okay, kind of weird. We don't do a lot of oath swearing, but back in those days, it was really important and powerful. And there was no one else you could swear an oath by that was any higher than God, and so he just swears it by himself, right? So when we swear an oath, we swear it by God. I swear to God, right? Like, in fact, when we go to court, we put our hand on a Bible and we say, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, so help me God. We swear by something higher. It's the reason that our, our courts or our states or even our government has a federal seal to make sure that we are part of a higher accountability. 
In other words, we're not just getting together, having a conversation here. There's something bigger at play. And we are basically holding ourselves to a higher accountability. But there is no higher accountability for God. And so God says, I swear to you that not only do my promises secure, but I will make an oath by myself, swear by myself, which is something that is unchangeable, meaning I cannot break it. I cannot lie, and I cannot break my promises. And so what I promised to deliver Abraham, you are a result of that great promise. So God swears an oath. But the second part of this twofold promise is that in that oath, God also promises to keep his promises. So God swears an oath, and he promises us something really great, and God never breaks those. Listen to what he says in those next verses. Men swear an oath by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. So when you say, look, I swear an oath in those days, basically you're saying, I will give my life to hold true what I just told you. And then nobody else can argue with it because we swore by a higher authority. Puts an end to the argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs, which is you and I, those Hebrew Christians, of what he promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, which was impossible for God to lie by, we have fled to take hold of the hope that's offered. So he says this. He says, listen, I'm going to do two things that are unchangeable for me, and I'm going to anchor them to you. I'm going to swear an oath, and I'm going to make a promise. And I don't lie, and those things will never change. And then it says, and so when we heard those, we fled towards hope. We fled towards God's promises. Because here's the reality, right? Humans lie. We are inclined to lie. As soon as things get hard, we lie. It's just who we are. Promises don't mean much to us. We break them all the time. I mean, imagine not judging or doing those things, but think about your marriage covenant that you made. How much of humanity over 50% of the time throws those away? Promises that we make. And those are big ones. The little ones we do on a daily basis. Most of us, our word means zero. Right? Whenever things get complicated, we just lie. We get caught in a bind, we lie. Just look at your children, right? They will die on the dumbest sword because they just are inclined to lie. Even when you're holding this open bag of chocolate and it's all over their face, and you're like, You ate this, and they're like, I did not. And you're like, You ate it. They're like, I swear to God, I did not. I'm like, It's in your eyes. Like, I see chocolate in your eyeballs. And they're like, those aren't my eyes. <laughs> what? Yeah, like these came from the neighbor. The eyes did. I took them out and swapped them. Like, they will die on these things because humans lie. And therefore, it's very hard for us to trust. Because we have been lied to more times than we've actually been told the truth, most likely. And in the times where it's when we need it the most are the times that it hurts the most, Right? times when we're counting on people and they let us down because humans lie. And so God knows that our faith is weak when it comes to promises because we don't believe people and rightly so. And so God says, I know you struggle with believing in promises. Even though I have promised to you that you can rest assured in my presence and my promises that I will never leave you nor forsake you, that you're grafted in as part of this incredible divine redemptive plan that if you put your hope and faith in Christ, your salvation is assured. I know your heart's going to wander even though I promise you. And so what I want to do is I want to make it even more certain for you. I'm going to take an oath on that promise. I don't need to. I'm God. I never lie. But I'm going to do it for you. 
because I want you to be that assured. So I, the God that never lies, that promises never leave you, forsake you, that sealed your salvation from Abraham's call through Isaac all the way to Jesus, that if you put your hope in him, your faith is secure, meaning you don't have to be tossed by culture, by waves, by circumstances, by lack of faith. Trust me, you are safe and firm and secure. I know you're still going to have a hard time believing me. Your faith is weak and the circumstances of life are hard. And so I'm going to actually make this a twofold thing. I'm going to promise you and I'm going to take an oath by myself. I'm going to, I'm going to basically swear by myself, by God, that I will do the things that I said I would do. That covenant I made with Abraham is fulfilled in you. So quit being afraid. That's what he's saying. And so what is that Hebrew author says, he says, so that when we hear this, right, God did all this, these two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled to take hold of that hope that is offered to us may be greatly encouraged. So when we hear God's promises, when we hear him taking the oath, we fled towards that hope and we're encouraged. Think about that imagery for just a moment. That a God who knows we wrestle with keeping promises, that knows we wrestle with the reality of humanity's word. And when our faith, our lack of faith and culture and circumstances get all mixed up and we begin to get afraid. God, where are you? Why is this happening? God, do you even care? God, are you there? God, am I saved? All the questions we looked at the past two weeks. God says, I'm here. I promise you I'm here. That if you put your faith in Christ, your salvation is firm and secure. I promise you that. And I swear by myself. These are two unchangeable things which I can never break because I don't lie. I cannot lie. And it says that when we heard this, we fled towards that hope and we were encouraged. In other words, we didn't tentatively kind of go, whew, that's really great to hear. We fled towards it. In other words, we ran to the embrace of assurance. Now, it may not sound like much for you and I today, but if we understood the nature of oaths and we understood the nature of promises, there's really something remarkable here. That God doesn't shame us for not always having perfect faith or not believing everything or even struggling. He doesn't shame us. He does not like, how could you? You're worthless. You're he just says, listen, I want you to be assured in it. I want you to find safety and security in me. And so I promise you, and if that's not enough, I'm going to take an oath on it. I can't break those things. Trust me. And I'll take an oath and I'll swear and I'll make those promises. And then in that, we can find this full assurance in which we flee towards him and we're encouraged. Even with our lack of faith and even when circumstances of life bring us just the difficult. We can trust that as a great promise that God made to Abraham and fulfilled in Christ, we are the heirs to. Peter calls us an heirs. Paul calls us heirs. We are heirs to the promises of God. So how does all this wrap up? What's, the, what's the, the sort of how we do this, the approach to all this? Well, listen to those last couple of verses. So God did this by these unchangeable things, that we fled towards that hope offered. Listen to verse 19. We have hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf, and he has become a high priest forever. And the order of Melchizedek, so in this beautiful sermon that's been crafted, right, he's going to tie us perfectly back into where he left us with the high priest conversation. We'll get to it next week. But he says this, we have hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure. So 
I love this because he mixes metaphors. We've got anchors, and we've got this idea of this sort of holy of holies. Firm and secure, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. So we've got these two metaphors, an anchor and the holy of holies. And what is the holy of holies? Well, those of you familiar with your temple theology, your Old Testament theology, the holy of holies is a place that represents the presence of God. So when the temple was built, there was an area in there where God's presence dwelled, where the ark was kept, where the presence of God dwelled, and where the high priest would go once a year to make a sacrifice for the people. And that representation was where God met with his people. But if you remember the crucifixion story, right, what happens when Jesus is crucified, the curtain that separated the people from the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, was torn in two from top to bottom, meaning from God to humanity, not from humanity to God. It's very symbolic and very right. And so God tears the temple curtain, and therefore, through Christ, we are now have full access to the presence of God. But this is the metaphor there. Think about this for just a moment. You've got this anchor. And where do you normally drop an anchor? Well, we drop it off the boat into a lake or into the gulf or into the ocean. That's where an anchor goes, and it goes and hits the bottom. But where does our author tell us our anchor goes when we drop it in hope? It goes behind the curtain in the inner sanctuary. So think about this for a moment. When we fully trust God's promises, when we believe he is who he says, he is his oath, and we trust that his word is true, our anchor of hope drops not to the bottom somewhere, but it drops into the presence of God. Is there anything more unmoving or unchanging than God's presence? No. So the anchor for our hope is not some plumb line of morality. The anchor for our hope is actually the very presence of God. It is Jesus who went before us, right? Who went ahead of us and who made that ultimate sacrifice so that our hope is in the presence of the risen Christ. And that never moves, never will be shaken, and it's never altered. That your anchor of hope is not in circumstance or morality or anything else. It is firmly anchored behind the curtain in the presence of the risen Christ. Now these are unbelievable things if you truly think about them. Because God knows that our circumstances are hard in life, that our faith is weak, and that we're going to struggle with believing his promises, that I'm saved, that I'm secure, that my life is marked in him, that I've given my life to Christ, but I didn't know life was going to be this hard. I didn't know I'd struggle this way. I didn't know I'd have these kind of fears or these worries or these anxieties. I didn't know that life was going to sweep over me at waves at time. I didn't know that I would feel alone so much. And God says, I know. And so I want you to hear my promises. That even in the middle of all of that, you are a great heir in the line of Abraham. The promise that I have for his descendants is you. That when you put your faith in Christ, you are rest assured in your salvation and that I will never leave you nor forsake you. So find an anchor point for your soul. But I know that you won't just believe my word because I know the temperament of your heart. So I will swear an oath by myself. I will make an oath on my promises, which I don't need to do, but I do it for you. And when you put those two things together, and you find your assurance in me, it's like you're taking your anchor and not dropping it to the seafloor or to some part of morality or to some circumstance, but you are dropping it in the very heartbeat of the presence of God. And nothing is more unmovable. You are behind the curtain where Jesus has gone and been raised from the dead, and you are anchored to him. So eventually, right, when the waves and the circumstances didn't move, we look down and we are tethered to God's presence. Doesn't mean that the boat's not going to shift on top of the wave sometimes. That's life. 
But what it means is that I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to worry because I am assured that I'm part of God's great promises because of my hope and faith in Jesus Christ. And whatever this world does, whatever it brings me, whatever move, whatever struggle, whatever fear, whatever disease, whatever issue, whatever family, whatever catastrophe, whatever it may be, I will not be shaken. Right? My hope is assured in Christ. And so whatever this world brings, I will never be untethered from the presence of God. It doesn't mean it won't be hard, but it means I'll never be untethered. And so he says, basically, do you all hear me? Now let me tell you about how great Jesus is as a perfect high priest. And he gets back into this idea that Jesus is the go-between. It's incredible, incredible stuff. So next week we're going to pick up on that. But all that to simply say this week, and all the things that we've talked about, challenging, the, the difficult, the, the questions about salvation, all those kind of pieces that we've explored the past three weeks. God wants you to be assured in your promise. He wants you to put your hope and faith in Christ and then rest in it. He doesn't want every day for you to be like, I wonder, I'm worried, I'm afraid, I'm anxious. He just wants you to find hope in him alone. He's made a promise. He's reassured that promise with an oath. He did it to Abraham, and that promise is good for you. It's good for all of us to put our faith in Christ. And we do that. We drop our anchor of hope. We run towards it. We drop our anchor of hope firmly behind the curtain into the presence of the risen Christ. That whatever life does, whichever way it moves, whatever it brings, I will not be shaken. And I'm in for the fight. But I don't fight alone because I'm anchored to the only one who will never, ever fail me. Let's pray together. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that it is secure, it is firm, it is solid, it is true, that it never, ever moves. That you have given us promises, you have taken oaths, but they're all for us. They're not for you. You don't break your word. But we are such a faithless people that you just want us to find hope. And so you swear by yourself, you make promises, and then you tell us in the middle of all that that we find great encouragement, we can run to you, and we can drop an anchor not to the ocean floor, not an anchor into the middle of the church, not an anchor into the middle of our own morality, not the anchor into our wives or our husbands or our children, but an anchor to the very presence of God that just says, behind the curtain with the risen Christ, I will tie my life to him. He will never move nor be shaken. I may question a lot of things in life. I may wonder why this is going on this way or why the stock market works this way or whatever, but I will never question who I am in Christ. That's the promise that's firm. And so, Lord, to close our time in worship, I pray that you would just seal our hearts. Let us be like these people that would flee towards the hope. The idea of fleeing, running with abandonment towards hope and not away from something is so beautiful. And so, Lord, we ask that to close our time in worship, you would make that reality true. And that the dads in this room, the dads in this room would anchor their own hearts and lives to Christ. And that would change their worlds. So, Lord, we stand together and close our time in worship. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Let's continue. In